Well, we're in Mark. We're going back to the gospel today. Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Turn there to verse, uh, what are we on? 30, I believe. And we're going to look at two of the most common understood stories of Jesus' life outside of Christmas and Easter. Okay, we know the Christmas story. We know the Easter story, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. These two stories that we're about to read and talk about. So you know what you're going to do? You're going to go, oh, I know that story. And now you're going to start thinking of March Madness or dinner or something else. And that FAU is still in the playoffs. And we're excited about that. We are both alums of FAU. So we're excited about that. But don't be thinking about that. Okay. Because sometimes in the most familiar stories, there's nuggets of truth. And I want us to grab a nugget or two of truth out of these very familiar stories that Elizabeth is going to share with us. All right. Good morning, church family. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and had, they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd." And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not yet understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Thank you, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Two very familiar passages in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. What can we learn from them? What I'd like to do is to give the application first. Can we do that? I'm going to tell you the end at the beginning, so if you check out, you got the end first. Can I do that? Now, here's the thing. If you know me well, you know that I'm a lifelong learner. I hope you're a lifelong learner. I hope you didn't stop learning when you left high school or college or tech school or whatever schooling officially you went to for your business or your work or whatever, but I hope you learn every single day that you're always learning. So this week, I was praying through these passages, and three different people, you, people in the congregation, came to me and told me what you had learned. And I'm thinking, this is God telling me what I should be learning this week. So can I tell you as an application? So you all are doing the application. First of all, a friend named Mark, who's in our congregation, we're in a small group together, and he had been reading two passages of Scripture, Psalm 27 and Psalm 37. Don't turn there, but write them down. Psalm 27 is a psalm when David is being chased by his adversaries the evil ones. And it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? We're familiar with those passages. He said, but read on. And as you read on, you find out there's this army sense. There's this sense that we need to be strong and take courage and be a part and realize that God is our light and God is our salvation and God's got our back and God is going to take care of us and you've got to be there with your sword in hand and ready to take the charge. I thought, wow, this is cool. And then he said, but Psalm 37 is also a psalm of David, and it's a psalm when David is being chased by his adversaries, same scenario, exact same thing. It all talks about enemies and armies and being chased and those who hate you and those who want to kill you. And then it says, delight yourself in the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. Commit your way to the Lord. Fret not. Fret not is different than take up the sword. And he said to our small group, he said, sometimes you got to be in the front, and sometimes you just got to let God do the work and just delight in the Lord. And a part of spiritual life is understanding the difference. And it's interesting, as we look at this passage, the beginning of this passage is when God or Christ takes the disciples aside and says, you need to rest. We'll come back to that. On Thursday, I was having lunch with a newer attender of our church, a gentleman who I had um, grown up with, although he was a couple years older than me, so we just, we never kind of connected. We always knew each other, but didn't really. He was a few years ahead in school, and we actually grew up down the street from each other, but has been attending the church lately, and so we've gotten to know each other better. It's really been fun to kind of reconnect. His name is Bill, like me, same name, 
And he took the devotional last week and started it last week. He didn't know we were supposed to start it tomorrow, that we gave it out a week in advance, and I didn't care that he was doing it. As long as you do it, you can do it any day you want. And he said, the opening transformed my life. I said, what do you mean? And right there in the opening, I want to read it to you because you'll be reading it tomorrow morning. It says, the trouble with nearly everybody who prays is that he or she says amen and then runs before God has a chance to reply. And he said, I've been praying my entire life, but never listening to what God is going to do. Listening to God is far more important than giving him our ideas. Isn't that great? I mean, it's right here in like 25 point. I helped write this thing, and yet a member of our church brought it to my attention that when we pray, let's just stop and listen. When God is working in your life as he is in the lives that we're going to see with the disciples and all those 5,000, et cetera, Sometimes you have to stop and listen to what he's doing in this place. Isn't that great? And then, so Thursday night, I go see, Elizabeth and I go see our grandchildren perform at the Boca Christian Fine Arts Night, you know, and that's also, that's always a chance. You know, you're never quite sure what you're going to get at a first grade, second grade Fine Arts Night, right? It's like, it's like a love-hate thing for me. It was unbelievable, first of all. Boca Christian, unbelievable what their team did. Unbelievable. Elizabeth and I are crying. We're just weeping over the whole thing. It was just fantastic. They had a night that they celebrated languages and ethnic. It was unbelievable. But our friend Robin gave a little devotional in the middle of it. She's one of the teachers, the principal of our lower school. And she quoted her favorite verse. Now, her favorite verse is in a part of the Bible that you've never been, and I rarely go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. You know, where on earth is that? It's there. Zephaniah says, 317, the Lord your God is in your midst. That's what the whole story of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water is about. The Lord your God is in your midst. And then it says, a mighty one who will save. We actually sing a song that we sang 20 years ago called Mighty to Save that's from this verse. God is mighty to save. Jesus is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Now listen to this. He will quiet you with his love. Is that amazing? He will quiet you with all this chaos going on around and God doing all this mighty saving and doing all this incredible work. He's quieting us down. Why is he quieting us down? So that we can hear him. Because if we are not quieting or being quiet, we are, he could be speaking and we're not listening or we're listening and we're not hearing because of all the static. And that's what this passage, when we get to Mark, so let's, if you didn't turn there, look at Mark chapter 6, and it's three scenarios. First of all, verse 30 and 31 and 2, 
the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, this goes back to what had happened that we talked about, I think Francois talked about it or Matt a few weeks ago, and that was this, that Jesus sent the disciples out to the cities to go and teach, and so two by two, and they're all going, and now they have returned. Now, what you need to know, if I can give you a little, uh, you know I love history, and you know I love geography. Let me give you a quick geography lesson. They're around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, five miles wide. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world, about 800 feet below sea level, so everything goes up to sea level and a little above, so it's all mountains around. It's not really mountains, it's more like a bowl. It's a bowl down, okay, and it can be divided north and south on the east side with the Gentiles, 10 cities called the Decapolis. They're mentioned in the Bible. Jesus goes to the Decapolis occasionally. The Gentiles are on the east, and the Jews and the Romans are on the west. There's Tiberias, but all the Jewish towns, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Magdala, these little villages that we read about, they're all on this side. Jesus sends everybody out. And we don't know whether they're going to the Decapolis or to the Jewish towns or to the Roman towns. The Jews usually stayed with the Jews and the Gentiles stayed with the Gentiles, but Jesus moved about and he moved around. He wanted the word to get about. So he had people going. They're exhausted. They've been going. They haven't eaten much. And of course, he had told them, don't take money, don't take anything, um, just go and whatever happens, happens. And now it says they've returned And he said to them, come away, verse 31, let's come away by ourselves, yourselves, to a desolate place and do what? And rest, and rest. It doesn't mean Christ's work is not working. Christ works when we rest. Christ works when we work. Christ is always working. But Christ wanted us, them, to rest. It's so important. Now what happens is many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they go away and they're on by themselves. Now here's the thing, it's not a big lake. If you're up on the hill, you can see the whole northern part of the lake. I've done it, many of you have done it. You can see when there's a boat out there, you can see the boat out there. It's not a big lake. It's a small lake, and you can see, especially they're on the north end of the lake, so you can see it, and the people saw that the disciples and Jesus were heading to the other side, and so you know what they do? They run around the lake. And now, think of the boat. We have a misunderstanding of these boats. The boats in the Sea of Galilee are not European European vessels. We think European, you know, we think of old vessels, we think of three masts and the big sails and the wind jammers. No, these were tantamount to large rowboats. I have seen them. They have excavated first century boats. They're not much longer than this little piece of stage and they're probably as wide as my arms, maybe 10 feet wide you could row, maybe one mast you could put a little sail on. They're very small, but you can see them. So they don't go very fast. 
So if you're walking fast and you're on the edge, you could probably almost walk as fast around the lake as they're going across the lake. So they're going across the lake to go to the desolate place and the people are following them. And so they don't know this at the time. Jesus knows it, but they don't know it. There's a whole crowd of people following them around. So they get to this desolate place and some of your Bibles say desert. A desert, it's not a desert. This is not a desert area. Desert's in the south by Jerusalem and by Jericho and by Bethlehem, that's desert. This is pastoral lands. This is desolate because nobody lived there. Kind of a quiet area, the towns were separated. So they were in a desolate place. And while they're in this desolate place trying to rest, what happens? Verse 33, now when many people saw and recognized them, they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they go, oh, they're heading over there. They run around and get there, so they're there when they're there. Now here's something we need to understand. I'll just, since I'm talking about the lake, we in South Florida, and I know some of you are watching online and you're not in South Florida, and we're glad you're here and you're all over the world, but South Florida is unique in water because if you don't realize this, those of you who visit, we have Caribbean water on our ocean. Our ocean is the best water at a beach than anywhere in the United States, and that's not just a Boca boy saying that. It is. You go 100 miles north of it, and it's the, we live in the North Atlantic. The North Atlantic is blue, cold, great white shark waters. Yet we live in warm, light blue or green waters with all these tropical fish, right? You go swimming and all these fish are around. You go out a little and you see the stingrays. It's wonderful. This is how we think, at least me and Boca Raton, think of the Sea of Galilee. And we think of people in water. We need to realize, excluding the tropics, people did not swim back then. There was no swimming in the water. Water was there to get fish, maybe to bathe, if it was clean water to drink from, things like that, and to navigate. Now, here's the interesting thing. Think about the Jews and the Israelites back then. They are very bad at seafaring things, aren't they? Just think of the main stories in the Bible about water, bodies of water, and the Jewish people. Moses goes to what? The Red Sea. And what happens? No can do. He stops. He has to get God to divide the Red Sea. Joshua gets to the Jordan River. Now, do you realize the Jordan River in parts is not much wider than this? But yet they can't cross it because they don't know how to cross the water. So they got to get God to divide the water. I'm like, man, I have walked across the Jordan River. You go across, you can only go halfway or you get arrested. But because it's Jordan on the other side or Syria on the other side, but you can do it. It's nothing to it. I mean, we baptize in it. I could go across to the, you got, you got to baptize on this side and come back on this side. It's no big deal. You could, I mean, those of you been there, you can swim across, some parts you walk across, yet they had to get it divided because they don't know how to handle water. Oh, then Jonah, how about Jonah? What is Jonah? He actually gets in a ship, not a little river, and what happens to him? He ends up overboard in a whale, right? And then Paul, our other great 
Fisher story or ocean story. And what happens to him? He gets shipwrecked and great miracles happen, but he had to have a miracle to get back on shore and end up in Malta, then end up in front of the Caesar. The Jews do not do well back then with water, except the fishermen of Galilee. They're the only ones who really understood how to navigate water. And they did navigate water, and they go back and forth. Why? Because they were fishermen, and they had to fish, and that's why it was so low, because they didn't fish with rods and reel. They fished with nets, right? So they have to have it low. There's not these high-sided boats. It's a low-sided boat, so you could lean over and pull up the nets. And so they're going back and forth. Throughout the Gospels, they're going back and forth from the east, the Decapolis, to the west, where Capernaum and Bethsaida and these other cities are. And they're going back and forth. It's kind of desolate outside of these cities. And they're trying to find a desolate place. And Christ says, let's go to that desolate place. And the people are following them. And so they really didn't get the rest they needed. And we know what happens. What happens? Let's go down to, um, sorry, back over here. Verse 33, now when the many saw them and recognized them, they ran on their feet from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, he being Christ, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There's a great motif in the Bible about shepherds and sheep. If you've never studied sheep and shepherds in the Bible, it's a great study. Just go and Google or go to your app that you have on the Bible, and and you can do it in Isaiah, you can do it in Psalms, you can do it in Jeremiah. It's an amazing thing. A shepherd is needed when there are sheep. And when he says they are sheep, they need a shepherd. John chapter 10 talks about Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd, and he keeps the gate to the sheep pen. It's very important to understand. And when he sees that they're sheep, he has compassion on them. I think it's important for us every once in a while to have some compassion on people. I mean, we don't like them. They they believe different than we do. They do different things than we do. But could we just once in a while just have good old-fashioned compassion on people? You go, but they're astray. Well, isn't that what sheep do? In, in, don't, don't sheep just go astray? All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, the Bible tells us that the sheep will go astray. When they go astray, we get upset and go, I'm not going to be with them because they're going astray. No, I think that's where we should be attracted. You know, this world is going astray. You should be attracted to them because you have the good shepherd with you. And you should go to the sheep who have gone astray as opposed to saying, let's wall off the sheep that have gone astray. Do you see that? Now, that's a scary thought. Let's go to the people we don't agree with. Let's go to the people that have need. Let's go help them because they are sheep without a shepherd. And my friends, you have a shepherd. Let's go to them. And Jesus has compassion on them. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Mark doesn't go into a lot of the teachings of Jesus. He's telling us the story of Jesus. He doesn't do what Matthew and Luke do and give us incredible teachings. Now, the 
the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few, if not the only uh, major miracle that Jesus does that's in all four gospels. So it's there, you can read it in all four gospels and he gives you different, each writer gives you different aspects of this. But I'm gonna stay in Mark so that we have enough time today. This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. And the disciples said to him, uh, that, send them away and go into, let them go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, you need to realize that there's 5,000 men, there's at least 15,000 people there, could have been 20,000 people with the women and children and others uh, all there, and they're all there. And so, and where are they going to go? These villages, think about it, most of the people left the village to come. So there's no village that has stores open that can serve as 15 or 20,000 people. It's very much like that um, revival that's occurring in uh, Kentucky, in that little town of a couple thousand people there. You know, and everybody's wondering how, they don't have bathrooms, they don't have places to eat. It's like that. People are just coming from everywhere and there aren't any services to service the people. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Well, that, I love Jesus on this thing. He's like saying, you do it, you do it. Sorry, I'm pointing my finger, never point at people. You do it, you do it. You give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and spend 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Okay, we don't get 200 denarii. 200 denarii is about, in American dollars, $35,000. Just count it up, it's about $35,000 to feed them one meal, 15,000 people. That's how much they would have to do. So they didn't have that money because Jesus told them, go and don't take money. So they don't have any money. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Now, again, Americans don't get loaves. We think of, you know, Wonder Bread loaves. That's not the loaf we're talking about here that you slice up. These are small little barley loaves. Think of little pita bread, kind of mini pita breads or Arabic bread. You're familiar with that. Our family eats it all the time. Very small, just enough. You can have two or three yourself. It's this small. That's what he's talking about with loaves. Go and see. And when they found out, they had five. One boy, it turns out, we know from the other passage, he had five, so a little boy can eat five. How much could a man eat? How much could a growing young man or young woman eat? And they had two fish. These were cooked fish. Cooked fish, probably salted in some way or pickled in some way because they didn't have refrigeration. Now think about it. There's fishermen, all these guys are fishermen, right? All but maybe three of them, of the disciples, and they have no fish to give. Isn't that interesting? You ever think of that? He's saying to fishermen, go give them fish, and they have no fish to give. Uh, I just find it interesting. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. They sat down in groups, hundreds, fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Very much like the Last Supper, isn't it? When Jesus took the bread and looked in heaven and broke it and blessed it and gave it to the 12 disciples. It's a very similar thing. 
And he divided the two fish among them all. Can you imagine? These, these fish are the little fish. We're not talking about this kind of fish. It's a boy who has it in his little satchel, five loaves and two little fish. And out of those two little fish, he feeds 15,000 people. What a miracle this is. And all ate and all were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. People go, why 12 baskets? I believe, pretty simple, they're 12 disciples. They each got a basket. They came back with more food than they took. Now, there could have been 30 baskets in put to 12. I don't know, but 12 guys were in charge. They had 12 baskets. They took it. So, that's miracle number one. There's a miracle here that occurred that Jesus divided the loaves and fishes and fed people. What do we learn here from this? Pretty simple. What's the word we learn? The Lord provides. The Lord provides. Give us this day our daily bread. He provides the basics. The Lord provides. You don't have to be big theological words here. The Lord provides. We'll come back to that. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. Okay, they're back into that boat and go before him to the other side. So, you know, they're going back and forth and back and forth. This has happened multiple times, and we're only in chapter 6, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So, Jesus says, I'll take care of this crowd. You guys get in the boat and take back to the other side. Okay, I'll meet you there later. I'm sure he said that and probably other things. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Now, this is multiple times Jesus has taken himself out of the game and gone up and rested. Now, this is a good illustration for us. If Jesus needs to rest, if God needed to rest on the seventh day, you and I need to rest. Now, here's the thing. Rest does not mean void. Rest means that you stop the daily stuff you're doing so that God can speak to you in a way that you're not so busy with other things. So it's not just resting. Yes, there is a sense of resting in terms of your body, but many of us work our heads and not our bodies. We don't need to rest our bodies. I, use, I work from here up. I don't need to rest from here down. If you work from here down, you need to rest it. I need to rest from here up. And a lot of you listening to me use this more than this. Maybe on your rest day, you need to use this more than this, right? So, and you can still be resting and doing some exercise, whatever, as long as you allow God to speak to you. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up and prayed. And when evening had came, the boat was out on the sea. Remember, it's a small fishing vessel, maybe with one mast. And he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and it was about the fourth watch. The fourth watch is three in the morning to six in the morning. The first watch is six at night to nine, second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight, third watch, midnight to four, fourth watch, um, three in the morning, sorry, three in the morning to six in the morning. Three hours slips. Does that make sense? I'm doing it the wrong way. That way for you and... Um, it's the fourth wash. So the second miracle occurs that Jesus was able to see him. 
Okay, he's up on a mountain, he sees them at night. You could say, well, maybe it's a full moon and he could see them. It's a miracle to me that he sees them struggling because they're probably two or three miles away on a boat that's not much bigger than 30 feet long and maybe six or eight feet wide. And he could see that they are struggling. And about the force watch, he came to them walking on the sea. That's walking on the water. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, I don't know if, Jesus, if this is a humorous thing when he said he meant to walk by him just to kind of see if they would see him. I don't know if Jesus has a sense of humor. I'm gonna ask him. I think he does have a little sense of humor. Why did he wanna walk by them? I think he just kind of wanted to go be, and see them from the front side. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I don't think anybody has really got the right answer on that, but he did. And then he stopped, and they were afraid. And he says, take heart, it is I. The word there is I am. It is I am. Kind of interesting. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. You see, there's four miracles here. The first miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. The second miracle is him seeing them in trouble. The third miracle is him walking on the water. The fourth miracle is the wind ceased. It ceased. Beautiful. And they were utterly astounded. Verse 52, I want you to underline it. For they did not understand about the loaves. Wow, what does that mean? Why is he going back to the feeding of the 5,000 when he just walked on water and calmed the sea? Here's the thing. Number two, the Lord provides, the Lord protects but you need to understand that the Lord protects because the Lord provides. They didn't get the breaking of the loaves from two, five loaves and two fish to thousands of loaves and thousands of fish. They didn't get that provision. They didn't understand it. Now, the people obviously didn't because they all probably didn't know what was going on, but the disciples didn't get it. And it says their hearts were hardened now, this isn't the hardening of like Pharaoh in the Old Testament and some of the bad kings in the Old Testament. This is a confused hardening that they are not understanding. Here we are in the middle of Jesus' ministry, yet that Jesus can do these miracles, that Jesus gets it. They don't get it. He's doing, let's call it uh, easy stuff, you know, just feeding people, and he's doing hard stuff, walking on water, calming nature, all this kind of thing. I tell you what, Jesus is here to protect and to provide. And you and I need to understand it. And sometimes we are so busy that we don't get it. And if I can go back to what my friend Bill said and what's at the beginning of the devotion that you're gonna to start tomorrow is sometimes you gotta pray and then just be quiet and listen to what God is saying to you. Do you believe that? That is what is so key, because here's what happens. Each of us go, what can I bring to God? 
you know, I, I asked you to give offerings. I asked you to give tithes. I asked you to give. Okay, that's giving. Okay. But please never believe that that's going to get you in good standing with God. Oh, it's good. It's a result of being in good standing with God. But as we learned last week with character, you could give for the wrong reason. You could give, so I write you a nice note and thank you, and you want a nice note for me and thanking, and so you're giving out of pride as opposed to humility. You see, giving also is a part of the heart as well as a part of the pocketbook. Now, how does all this work? Our time is up. Let me share something. I'll go a little historical. One of the last big emperors in the world was a guy named Franz Joseph. Just before World War I, he died. Just at World War I, he was a Habsburg, one of the largest Austrian-Hungary group. If you're not familiar with Eastern Europe, it doesn't matter. But he had about 20 countries he was in charge of. And he dies. And so it's in Vienna, his palace is the Schoenberg Palace in Vienna, and he's getting buried at an abbey in the city, in, uh, you know, the crypt there in the city. And so they do this, uh, they have the um, hearse being pulled by horses, and they have a man ahead, and thousands, tens of thousands of people are lining the streets of Vienna. I think it's 1914, somewhere in that, and they're, they're, they're just kind of parading him around, so everybody gets an opportunity to see the hearse of the dead emperor. He's been the emperor since the mid-1800s, and they all loved him, et cetera, et cetera. And so, here he comes. And there's a master of ceremonies, as we call a master of ceremonies, now somebody who emcees a meeting. He's actually the guy holding the emperor's scepter and walking in front of the horses, which is pulling the hearse. And they get to the abbey and those big double doors, and he walks up the steps, the MC, the master of ceremonies, with this huge scepter. Tens of thousands of people are in the the streets behind, the throngs behind, and he bangs the scepter on the abbey door. And on the other side of the door is the abbot, you know, the rector, the pastor, they call him an abbot of an abbey. The abbot calls, says, who is it? And the master of ceremony says, it's Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria and Hungary, King of Dalmatia, Galatia, Croatia, Serbia, and as he's quoting all these nations that he's king of, you hear the voice in the background saying, I do not know you. And then the master of ceremonies goes like this, and the abbot goes, who is it? And he says, Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria and Hungary, and he begins to name the other 10 nations he was king of. And the abbot yells through the door, I do not know you. At which time, the master of ceremonies kneels and doesn't knock and says, it is Franz Joseph, a poor sinner asking for forgiveness. At which time, the door flings open and the abbot walks out and says, enter. 
Now, that's just a picture of the reality that there is nothing in this world you can do to enter heaven except ask forgiveness from the Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if one of the last emperors of the world could not enter heaven for his works, you and I certainly aren't going to enter heaven with our works. How do we enter heaven? Is bowing our life, bowing our hearts, bowing our knee to the Almighty God and seeking his forgiveness through his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Then you can understand the loaves. You can understand the miracles of Jesus because the miracles of Jesus are not because you're good. The miracles of Jesus are because we are sheep and we need a shepherd. He doesn't do it, oh, God's given me so much because I must be good. No, God is giving to you because you're a sheep that needs his protection. Let's pray together.